Gary Kasparov is a former world chess champion, a former Russian dissident and democracy leader, and a current human rights activist. He's founded a new organization committed to protecting and promoting democratic values and freedoms in the U.S. and around the world. He's graciously agreed to join me, Cliff May, and you for a wide-ranging discussion here on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the we game. We are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. I am fearful for what happens to Turkey now. If you thought that it was dangerous that a coup might have toppled this democracy, think about what this very autocratic man might do. Gary, thanks for being with us. I'd like to start with the personal before moving on to policy. I'm going to offer a few details that people may not know, and which I'd love to have you expand upon. For example, you were born not in Russia, but in Baku, in Azerbaijan, which was then Soviet Azerbaijan. And for those who may not know, Azerbaijan is largely Shia Muslim, and the main language is close to Turkish. Your father was Jewish, your mother was Armenian, and you were once a member of the Soviet Communist Party. Why don't you take it from there? Yeah, I think I can make a slight correction for American audience. I always say that I was born and raised in the Deep South, right next to Georgia, <laughs> because uh, the Soviet Republic was origin was right next to the Soviet Republic of Georgia. And of course, it was the Deep South of the USSR. Yes, you were right saying that Azerbaijan is, is predominantly Shia Muslims, and the language is almost identical to Turkish. But when I grew up, uh, religion was not a factor. Um, Ethnicity, yes, I was half Armenian, half Jewish, but Baku was a very multi-ethnic society when, where Russian was a dominated language. So that's why that mm. was my first language. My mother, uh, she came from an Armenian family from Nagorno-Karabakh, Artsakh, mm. as Armenian, Armenians call it. Um, uh, but she also spoke Russian. We spoke Russian in our family. She married a Jew. Her second sister married an Armenian. The third sister, the youngest sister, married an Azeri. Mm-hmm. So that's why we just, we had, you know, all the bloods uh, mixed up in our family. And again, Russian was the, um, was, was the language. Uh, and Baku, unlike the Belisi capital of the Republic of Georgia or Yerevan, capital of Armenia, was not uh, dominated by the, by the local language and local culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has changed, I, I, I guess, since... Uh, we all were forced to leave Baku after Armenian pogroms in 1990. Um, mm. But uh, again, when I grew up, um, it was quite an open, by Soviet standards, of course, society. Yeah, right. And by the side, from what I understand, it's it's a, it's a very open society now and kind of an interesting one. But oh, okay, that's it's a little bit, you know, just, no? it's an overstated open society. It's it's a family dictatorship. It's, it's a family. It's, no, it's a family. Yeah, yeah it's a leave family now. Uh, yeah, yeah. leave. Uh, yeah. Um, the son is yeah. uh, running the country, you know, with his, his iron fist, and it's uh, it's one of the worst human right records uh, in the former Soviet Union. 
and there's quite a stiff competition there, I have to say. Okay. Now you also, I have to I have to address one of the one of the important things you mentioned that I was the member of the Communist Party. Yeah. Uh, it's not the not the brightest moment of my life, but <laughs> it was like a prerequisite. You could challenge Anatoly Karpov, sitting mm -hmm. world champion. You couldn't, you know, represent Soviet Union on the very top unless you know you signed up for the Communist Party. And uh, and I have to say, just you know, as as my excuse that I left it in January 1990. Not as everybody did in August 1991, but in January 1990, after Armenian pogroms in Baku, I, uh, I sent my uh, party uh, uh, document back to the local party district and saying that uh, I believe that you know this, this party lost any any moral rights to to lead up. And when you left Baku, as the Soviet Union was was breaking up, you you went to Moscow, I believe, and yeah. you created the Democratic Party of Russia. Now, that must yeah. have been an interesting challenge. It's it, you said <laughs> left from Moscow. It's you know it, somehow it's the uh, I could say I never left Russian Empire uh, until, of course, I had to do it in 2013 uh, uh, for yes, for political reasons. But in 1990, uh, we moved from the suburbs of the collapsing empire into the capital. Right. Somehow it was a similar in you know, a move like uh, for Brits leaving India or the French living in Algeria and just going back to metropolis. So um, I, uh, I was born and raised in a country where Moscow was the capital. Mm -hmm. And uh, for you know, most of my life, I played chess uh, uh, for the country where Moscow was still the capital. Right. So yeah, um, uh, but uh, it's, you know, it, was, it was a forced move. Um, and uh, uh, we were lucky that I had resources to not just to evacuate my family at this very perilous moment, but also to um, help a few other people. So uh, in, in Moscow, you created the Democratic Party of yeah, Russia. The, later, the United the, I, joined, I joined the group of uh, Soviet uh, um, intellectuals and also a uh, few former party officials because it's 1990, it's, you remember, of course, this, that was a very you know, um, exciting moment in Soviet history. We all knew that the Communist Party was going down, and nobody had any idea what 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 to expect in the future. And uh, as someone who believed that you know I I could play a role by using my notoriety and uh, my uh, my um, ability to strategize, analyze, but most important, you know, just my image among Soviet people as, as a chess world champion, I could help my country to normalize, to become a free country. Democratic country, and uh, it was it it was not a failed project, but it was not the most successful one because the party uh, it's, it was a short-lived party. It, mm -hmm. it uh, had a few few uh, elements, few segments that merged for a while. But after the collapse of the Soviet Union, you know, it's it's uh, it it was proven to be not a failure, but uh, some kind of um, um, uh, unnecessary detail in, in a new political uh, uh, environment. Right. And you, uh, and you eventually left or maybe fled Moscow for New York, I think, in 2013, yeah, and kind of February. one step ahead of the sheriff. I mean, Putin was likely to arrest you if you hadn't done that, right? Uh, well, look, uh, we never know, but it's just, you know, I was facing interrogation in the uh, Russian... Uh, um, uh, interrogation committee, some kind of Russian FBI. 
and uh, uh, they they have been investigating, if you call it investigation, political activities. And some of the uh, some of the people who marched with me in, in our very peaceful rallies. And by the way, I have to say that we were very proud that all our rallies, all they were very peaceful. We didn't have a single broken window mm. set aside, you know, uh, burned cars or, or buildings. It was absolutely peaceful. And I, I, I was uh, uh, very proud that I could bring very different groups, even, you know, far left groups, but everybody knew the rule. So if we march together, no violence. The only violence in the streets of Russia came from riot police, from Putin's, uh, from Putin's bulldogs. So that attacked us. So, and in 2013, uh, they decided they had enough. They, they put a few people in jail. They, was, uh, they, were, they were about to start a big political trial. And uh, while I was traveling abroad, they called my mother, inviting me, politely inviting me to, to become a witness. And uh, my um, great friend and ally, late Boris Nemtsov, who was two years later killed uh, in 2015, uh, by by uh, Putin's cronies yes. uh, in the center of Moscow, he wisely advised me to stay stay away because he said, "Gary, you enter the building of this uh, uh, investigative committee uh, as a witness, and if you leave the building, you will be the suspect." Right, right. So you uh, you came to the to the U.S. at that point. Am I right that you also took Croatian citizenship at one point in two thousand? Yeah, yes. It's the it's the two separate stories because I I already had a place in the United States, so um, I had many friends there. You know, both political friends. I uh, had my associates working with me, so uh, professionally and politically, I was connected to the United States, and I looked for for a separate place uh, when I married in two thousand five. So that was my third marriage and uh, the very most successful one. And, and we had our daughter in 2006, Perfect. Born, born in 2006. And I knew that we had to look for another place because I couldn't take any uh, risk of, of, uh, of my wife, Dari, giving birth in Russia. So we already had a place in New York. So mm. from 2005, we already uh, um, uh, stayed in New York. And by 2013, we had our... We had our apartment uh, where we live now uh, in, uh, 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 on the Upper West Side. Um, uh, now, but yeah, I could travel back and forth and I was on um, uh, O-1 visa, uh, but eventually we decided that it would be important for me just to get a green card because, you know, I, I knew it's this, it's the, yeah, the life has been changing, but still, you know, I needed the passport because I, I couldn't leave on Russian passport and, uh, and I asked Croatian government and uh, uh, Prime Minister Milanovic, who is now uh, a president of, of Croatia, then he was a prime minister, he made an executive decision saying, Gary helped us in 91, 92, when Croatia was under attack. I was one of the first, if not the first prominent um, uh, uh, person who supported Croatia and their independence. And uh, since 1993, I spent every summer here in Croatia. And um, <laughs> they made an executive decision they issued passport to me as a friend of Croatia, and uh, a year later for my wife. So, uh, uh, so we we got our passports. By the way, these passports are very useful these days because yeah. now we can travel to Europe. <laughs> just, we can leave America and travel to Croatia, where I'm staying now. Yes, in, in our house near near Split. Do you do you, I, I, do you have an American citizenship as well at this point? No, I don't. My my wife does. So it's the. Uh, 
Yeah, she 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 became an American citizen early this year. Uh-huh. Probably it was one of one of the one of the last uh, uh, official procedures swearing uh, 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 newcomers in. Where is uh, she from? Uh, no, she's from Saint Petersburg. She's from Saint Petersburg. From so, Saint Petersburg. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and uh, so uh, I'm I'm the only. Uh, non-American in our family because uh, both our kids, they're American citizens and Dasha now. Do you yeah, plan to be? Do you plan to become uh, a I'm, I, I don't need to be, so I, I'm, I pay taxes. I'm, you know, just, you know, a very good taxpayer. I have my green card. I have no intention of going anywhere else. I have my Croatian passport. But if I want to play a certain role in Russia, and I believe that there will be an opportunity for me to help Russia to go back to the family of civilized nations, I would probably, you know, um, refrain of having American passport. That could probably, um, you know, uh, uh, undermine my ability to influence change in Russia. Well, I can see that. Although I see, I would urge you to become an American citizenship because I think America needs immigrants like you. And uh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm actively engaged. I mean, there's a very little, know you, you, know, you know, very little that I cannot do without having an American passport. So this is the. But uh, everything I can do by my writing, by my appearances, you know, I, um, I, I, I uh, contribute to uh, helping American democracy. And I can tell you that it's this somehow not being an American citizen these days offers me a better opportunity to defend America mm. because I'm defending it as the chairman of the Human Rights Foundation. That's another organization I chair. Right. Right. And I could speak on behalf of prominent dissidents from Africa, from Asia, from Latin America. And this is a very strong argument. It's a powerful voice coming from outside. And uh, it's, you know, it offers me an angle to, to defend American record, historical record against those who are uh, trying to use this momentum, moment of reckoning to yeah. undermine America, American institutions and American creed. Make that makes sense, and I tell you the reason I was saying that is it's it's often seemed to me that people who have lived under dictatorships, ever in the world, appreciate the value of freedom with more clarity than those who have grown up with freedom and sort of take it for granted and kind of fail to imagine what it's actually like to live under a repressive dictatorship. I think too many Americans don't understand that. Oh, absolutely. You know, when you hear Americans talking about socialism or communism, you know, I don't wish, uh, I don't wish them ill, but, uh, you know, live one year in Cuba or Venezuela yeah. or North Korea or Russia or Belarus. So it, they just, you know, they, they ignore the, the, the experience of others. And, uh, and it's to, to make you know, bad things worse. Now they, they look at America as the country of original sin. Mm-hmm. And they just don't recognize that while America had scenes, who didn't, America did many wrong things. America had its eels. But if you look at the historical record, there's no other country in the world that had a steady uh, uh, move to progress. It was like an incessant march toward, you know, uh, better society, you know, to discover our better angels. So it's, Yes, we we have democratic countries in Europe, but none of them had the same yes, the same straight uh, uh, road uh, from the past to the future uh, that was that was that didn't have these the big dives. American road was also bumpy. Nobody nobody argues about it. 
but right. you cannot judge America, you know, from the, you know, from the uh, heavens criteria. This is just, you know, it's a country on earth. Yes, it's the shining city on a hill. But it's the it's it's built by people and founding fathers knew better than 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 anyone else that people are were not perfect, and and the way they they, they wrote these the founding documents, the way they designed American political system, proved to be the most successful political experiment uh, that ever took place on planet Earth. I think I think I, I couldn't agree with you more, and I think that's uh, such an important message and so misunderstood by so many Americans who, do, who are not worldly, who don't understand what the rest but, of the world but, is like. But that's, that's, that's even just, it's, it's more even amazing that today when you can swipe your finger, push the button, and you can find out what's happening in Tanzania or in uh, uh, Pakistan uh, or in Venezuela or yeah. in Russia or in Belarus or wherever. Yeah. And people still ignore it. You know, this is, yes, the, the world is, 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 is full of, of, uh, of crimes committed by authoritarian regimes, by thugs, by terrorists. And while, you know, America is, is looking at its own problems, I mean, you cannot, with all due respect, you know, just, you know, measure it against genocide in China. We yes. are now facing genocide of millions of people in Xinjiang. We know you look at African countries. You know these is the what people you know are facing problems for. You know uh, um, being homosexuals, and it's not problems. You know you can face death penalty in many African countries. Yeah, we just you know understand you know the power of the Me Too movement, but you know being a Me Too activist in Hollywood is not the same as being <laughs> you know a female activist in Afghanistan. Right. You no, know, it's this is it's not facing you know Hollywood. Uh, uh, sexual predators, uh, but it's about Taliban. You know, yeah. this is so everything is relative. And while America is still showing, you know, the moral courage to address its sins, we cannot we cannot ignore the fact America is still the only country that you know that eliminated officially eliminated all uh, all the barriers on the way of um, of minorities to achieve success. It's the country, there's still an institutional bias. You still have millions of people who you may easily call them racist or anti-Semites. But institutionally, you know, when you look at the, at the, at the legal system, you know, America is still, you know, still the, the number one country that addresses these issues. You look at Europe, that is so proud of its, you know, human rights record. But, you know, European record on, on, on de- uh, treating uh, minorities uh, will will not stand against an American one. Well, I'm I'm glad you're making those points, and I'm, I'm going to get back to with you to, to some of these countries we've talked about in in some greater detail in a minute. But at this point, it's it's useful to mention that you've created a a, a new organization, relatively new, the Renew Democracy Initiative, um, and I assume you're making some of these points. But talk a little bit about what led led you to create this organization and what the organization's mission is, as you see it. Yeah, it's uh, the organization uh, appeared as many similar entities in February 2017. And it was not just a reaction on Donald Trump's election, but it was a reaction on the fact that Americans had to choose between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. You didn't have to be a political scientist to recognize that if Americans had uh, no better choice than between candidates with combined negative rating of 120%. So something was wrong. Mm. Um, and also um, people who worked with me and uh, there was a group 
of moderate Democrats in New York, but also the group that I called refugees from the Wall Street Journal, like <laughs> Brett Stevens, uh, Max Boot, uh, Mark Laswell. So, um, you know, we just, you know, sat down and just, it's, it was quite a, quite a, a, a relaxed occasion, but we recognized that we could do something, you know, and uh, um, to address these this issues that um, could have a serious effect, not only in America, but around the, around the world, in other, in other free countries. And uh, um, the original manifesto uh, addressed, addressed the threats from both far right and far left. The, our main concern was the collapse of the center of the mainstream political parties. And uh, we predicted, unfortunately correctly, that the rise of Donald Trump and, 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 and the shift of the Republican Party to the nativist side would inevitably lead to the, to, the, to the rise of far left and the most aggressive uh, leftist policies. And uh, uh, we could also look at Britain, you know, when the choice was between socialist programs uh, um, uh, presented by um, uh, Jeremy Corbyn, Jeremy Labour Corbyn. Party, and the Brexit, or the um, French elections, where, mm-hmm. you know, France was saved by Macron's uh, um, appearance, uh, always coming out of the blue. But in the first presidential, first ballot, the first round of presidential elections, far left and far right combined got 41%. 40, 21% for Marine Le Pen and 20, nearly 20 for Mélenchon. So uh, Germany with the rise of AFD, neo-Nazi party and the link. And in, 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 in several German, German lands, they're already, you know, just getting, if not majority, by the ruling coalitions. So we, we were really concerned that um, in America, the two major political parties that were built to safeguard the American political system against radicalism, to serve as shields, they eventually returned in the hotbeds of radicalism because gerrymandering and primary system uh, created a political class, like you know, the killers from the, from the extremes that, that gained disproportionate influence in both parties. Um, and uh, we thought that it would be necessary to address these issues and to talk about, about the necessity of reorganizing American political life to address, uh, uh, to adjust um, uh, the, the, the original foundation to the political challenges of 21st century. Because social media inevitably gives a big advantage to the loudest voices. Mm. And that's why relatively small groups on the far right or far left, they could actually gain disproportionate influence because they, they were the loudest. They were actively engaged. And we could see that now in, in many places now, this is the, the, the primaries ended up with, with the, the, the radicals throwing uh, um, at, at primaries, throwing um, the traditional mainstream representatives from both Democratic and Republican Party. Now, more actually on the Democratic side now, uh, because they, they could easily rally support. And you don't need much, much support. All you need is just, you know, uh, t- um, your uh, faithful followers that could create this, the uh, storm on Twitter or Facebook. You know, I, I just want to, looking at your website, the Renewed Democracy Initiative website, RDI, this caught my eye. Some disturbing statistics you note there. Only one-third of American millennials think it is essential to live in a democracy. This already gets back to what you were saying and we were discussing earlier. 36% have a positive view of communism and two thirds of Americans cannot name 
the three branches of government. This, this suggests to me, among other things, that America's educational system has become absolutely dysfunctional. You know, um, I uh, spoke to one of my daughter's teachers. Uh, we have very good relations. He's a relatively young man. And uh, we talked about uh, an important issue of privacy and security uh, uh, in cyberspace. And uh, um, uh, he was complaining about the surveillance capitalism and about this, the, the uh, Silicon Valley moguls uh, controlling our lives. And I'm, I, I, I didn't want to argue. I, I've been working with Avast Software. It's my fourth year that I'm, I'm, I'm writing essays and articles and doing speeches at the conferences, not during the last six months, of course. Um, talking about privacy and security and about, you know, the way we, you know, we, we're willing to trade, unfortunately, you know, um, our, our uh, privacy for some, conven some convenience. Um, but it's amazing that this very intelligent man ended up saying, look, there's no, there's no way you can control these monsters. There's only one answer, you know, it's a socialism. You have to create one central body that will be operating under the rules uh, 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 designed by the state, and it will, it will, this is the only way to stop the abuses. And I said, look, I can't even tell you the name of this one entity. It will be named KGB. <laughs> right, exactly. And it doesn't get that. Let, let's uh, dig down on a couple of uh, issues going on right now. You mentioned China. Uh, as we record this, uh, Jimmy uh, Lee, who a wonderful man, I've met him. He's visited us at FDD. He he was the publisher of uh, Apple Daily newspaper, a free newspaper in Hong Kong. He's a freedom fighter. He's over 70 years old. He's just been arrested and he could spend the rest of his life in jail. By the way, this does not surprise him when we spoke to him. He said, I know I may have to spend the rest of my life in jail. I'm willing or worse. I'm willing to do that because I'm not going to give up this fight. Uh, and you've weighed in about what's happening in Hong Kong. And by the way, there's some strong criticism also, not least of the U.S. National Bas Basketball Association, for accommodating human rights violations carried out by the Chinese Communist Party, particularly against the Muslim Uyghur minority population. Um, you tweeted, the NBA's concern for human rights stops at, right at the bank. China has Uyghur concentration camps and is preparing to crush Hong Kong. It has now done so. And he talks of mutual respect. What a joke. You followed up in another tweet. And are the NBA's supposed concerns limited to the U.S. only, despite its claims about its global brand? Can players put justice for Uyghurs or save Hong Kong or democracy for Turkey on their custom jer jerseys? And of course, it's not just the NBA, which is supposed to be a powerful and independent organization. It's professional sports. It's Hollywood. And by the way, it's much of the news media as well. I couldn't agree more. And it's, it's, uh, it's very painful for me as someone who has been regularly talking and communicating with human rights activists uh, from around the world uh, to see that uh, Americans from NBA, from other uh, sports organizations or from media, as you pointed out uh, correctly, they are just willing to shield America you know, from the rest of the world. It's as if we live in a bubble in the United States. You know, somehow they just, you know, they're following the Donald Trump's America first, not understanding it. So it's America should be a leader. And while America going through this very painful process of, 
you know, reconciliation with its past, it should not be limited to America because America is still way ahead of other countries. Yeah, and and the, it's the, the way that NBA is treated is is is, treat, is treating uh, Chinese abuses. And we, when we say abuses, we're talking about genocide. We're talking about violation of international treaty because they signed a treaty for Hong Kong. And that's by the way tells you what what is what is worse. Uh, um, uh, um, having a signature of a communist authority on any document. Uh, the British government, and that's the difference between democracy and, 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 and non-democratic country. The British government in 1898, let me say again, in 1898, signed a, a, a treaty with, where was it, China, Imperial China, you know, saying that, or just confirming that Hong Kong would return in 99 years. It was leased for 99 years. And uh, they returned it. And by the way, they, they leased a place with, what, four fishermen villages, mm. you know, just piece of land with nothing. And they returned one of the most successful economists in the world the, that was instrumental for Chinese economic miracle. But they returned it because it's continuity, because the democratic government, you know, respects, you know, what has been signed by their predecessors, even if it happened ages ago. And even if the government that signed this, this treaty was not, you know, well remembered in history. And China, you know, in less than, in less than 25 years, you know, this is this after this, the, uh, the, the transfer, they decided that it's, you know, it was too much of a hassle to deal with Hong Kong uh, democracy, uh, nascent democracy, but still, you know, quite vibrant because people wanted to live in a, you know, just in, in, in a different place as has been guaranteed one country, two systems. And China, they just threw it away. Same way Putin, Putin threw away all the agreements Russia signed with Ukraine by simply mm -hmm. annexing the territory. And uh, it's very important for America, who else, to take a strong stand defending international order and, and you know, having its presence that for 75 years stopped so many abuses and so many disasters in, in, in our world. So there are two points occur to me that I want to make on this. One is that we can, people can argue and do over what international law demands, because there's no international legislature, there's no international Supreme Court. So Amnesty International says, this is what international law demands, somebody else says it's not. But the fundamental, ba the basis of international law are treaties that are signed. That is clearly, there's no question that those contracts are international law. So now you have a member of the, the UN Security Council clearly, unambiguously, no argument, violating international law. They signed a treaty. They said, to hell with it. We're not going to live up to that treaty. Yep. And they'll, by the way, the UN Human Rights Council will do nothing about it. The UN will do nothing about it. No, now this, so you're, I know you're thinking, this brings me to this. <laughs> you know, if human rights and international law are going to be promoted globally, who's going to do it? It's clearly not the UN. It's not the UN Human Rights Council, which is an Orwellian organization at this point. Uh, if anything, it undermines human rights. Think of the people who are on the UN Human Rights Council, Eritrea, Qatar, Venezuela. Mauritania. Uh, what's that? Mauritania. Mauritania. The country, the country that is still practicing slavery. It's not the only country that's still practicing, but, it's, but it is one of the countries most obviously and to greatest extent practicing slavery right now, yeah. this yeah. minute. As we speak, yes. Right. Absolutely right. One thing that, that, make, that this leads me to think about, should the free nations of the world be building new and improved international communities 
among themselves to support human rights that would have comprehensive free trade agreements, mutual defense alliances, and telling the rogue countries, you're not part of this. The UN can remain as a debating society, a gathering place, but we're going to have our own or our own organizations. I don't know if you saw Andrew Roberts, the great historian, had a piece about this, uh, suggesting this was in the Wall Street Journal the weekend, last weekend, that there should be an Anglosphere, Britain, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and then that should partner with the U.S. and its allies. We, with the idea of we have to, the U.N. has failed. What else do we do to get to move on and to to promote human rights and promote the what we used to call the free world, and we don't very much anymore. Uh, yes, we need this organization, this kind of organization. I think the late John McCain talked about it. And uh, I have to refer to my own book, uh, Winter is Coming, uh, Why Vladimir Putin and the Enemies of the Free World Must Be Stopped, uh, released in 2015. And I talked about League of Democracy. Now, uh, I can argue with you when you said UN has failed, I don't think UN has failed because UN was not built to solve these problems. UN was built to avoid a next war that could happen between Russia, Soviet Union, and the United States. It was about freezing conflicts. And UN did its work. So the problem that is, since 1991, the end of the Cold War, we're expecting the United Nations to do something that it was not built for. UN, UN, UN is a platform, you know, it's this. And now I always say that, you know, one, you know, one week in New York, you know, every September, probably not this one, but we had, you know, we had a show for dictators, you know, like a catwalk for dictators. Um, um, but, you know, it's expecting the United Nations to uh, make any meaningful decisions. Uh, it's just, it's, it's ridiculous. I couldn't agree more, but still, you know, I'm not sure about Angola, you know, um, um, so the um, Anglophile aspect of that, yeah. because you have other countries. What about Japan? You know, what about, you know, uh, what about Chile? I mean, it's just, we have many countries that can easily meet, meet the standards, but what we should prevent for, for member countries to pay on a lip service. You cannot have Saudi Arabia as a member of the organization. You, can have, you cannot have many African countries. You can have Botswana, you can have Ghana, you can have South Africa. We can name few countries. But people should, you know, should desire to join. That's, that should be a dream. They should, you know, understand to join the organization, they must meet certain standards. So, so we do, okay, so we, we're quibbling on the UN as a whole, but the UN Human Rights Council, we don't quibble on. You agree this is a oh. failed and Orwellian and a parody of an organization. And by the way, organizations like the World Health Organization, I would argue, have essentially been hijacked and subverted by by the Chinese communists. I, I'm, not, I'm not arguing with you. So the, the WHO record at the beginning of pandemics is, 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 is lousy at the best. Right. Okay. Uh, it, it's, it, if we don't want to use, you know, stronger words like clandestine, you know, and, and, uh, and, and, and negligence. So this is that state. They, they, they have been definitely covering up uh, Chinese, Chinese uh, abuses and secrecy. All right, let's uh, let's focus on Russia for a minute. I, wouldn't, I think it's important that we get, have time for that. I, by the way, I you don't know if you know that I studied the Soviet Union in an Ivy League graduate school. I was at Columbia's Russian Institute. Not one of my professors predicted the collapse of the Soviet Union, and when it did fall, uh, fall, a conventional wisdom held that it would become free and democratic, more or less. But as you know better than most, 
the experts were off base. It, it has not been achieved. Putin eventually came to power. It's a dictatorship. I don't think Putin is a communist, but I think he's very Soviet. He's more, I think he's more Leninist than he is Marxist, if, if you will. Mm. You agree with me? No? No, here I think it's, we could have, uh, it's, it's a semantic disagreement. He's a dictator. Uh, it's more Stalinist than, than Leninist because mm. Lenin still had an ideology. Stalin didn't care about it. Stalin mm. could just, you know, go from communism to, to religion. So anything that helped him to, to, uh, win, to win the moment. Uh, so that's why 1943, he just rehabilitated the Russian Orthodox Church. Of course, infiltrated with KGB, so made it like a KGB branch. But still, you know, he could use any tools. So Putin is more like Stalin, um, who just looks at the world as the, as the sphere to be divided between great powers. So Putin's mentality is this. It's the it's 19th century or at best 1945. So his dream is Yalta. Uh, some people say that he annexed Crimea to have another Yalta conference where big guys could divide the world, as it happened in 1945. So... Um, he doesn't care even about, you know, the Russian empire, uh, but it's, this is, he finds it as the most uh, um, uh, attractive uh, concept to rally people behind him. By the way, the latest polls in Russia conducted by semi-independent groups, they show that less than 20% of Russians are uh, um, enthusiastic about these great Russian ideas. Mm. And the nearly 45% want Russia to become a proper democratic state with normally functioning law and with the government that, that changes the, at elections, not at, not at the will of the, uh, of the ruler. Putin is an alliance de facto with, with, with the Islamic Republic of Iran, uh, to some extent with Turkey, although there are tensions there. Um, it seems to me that he's decided he'd rather kowtow to China than, than be friendly really to the U.S. Not everybody gets that. Um, of course, he wants to sell weapons to Iran as well. Is, is what's going on here that the authoritarian nations all see the one common interest is to diminish the United States? It's not just diminish. They have to fight the United States because um, 50 years ago, bad guys could live separately from good guys. You had Iron Curtain, but also the communication systems were now quite primitive. Yeah, sophisticated by, by the 20th century standards, but it's not, it's not as, as today. We can just, you know, learn everything, you know, in the split of a second. So um, the modern technology, you know, uh, forced these guys, whether they are authoritarian leaders, terrorists, and all sorts of sacks, to confront America because otherwise they cannot justify their staying in power forever. So what else? I mean, it's, they cannot compete with the free world in just, you know, in machinery, in drains, and in the minimum wage. Uh, so they, they, they have to come up with an ideological argument. And, uh, and America is the is ideal target because it's the strongest nation, it's, 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 it's the strongest democracy, uh, the strongest military in the world, strongest economy, and defying America makes them look stronger. So that's why for Putin, attacking America is, 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 uh, is a bare necessity. Because why, why is he staying there? And it's, he made so many promises in 2000 when he took over. Then he made promises in 2008 when he just left temporarily, leaving his shadow. Then he came back in 2012, made more promises. And nothing, when you look at this record, nothing that he promised has ever materialized. But, you know, he has to justify, you know, his uh, um, uh, 
life tenure as a Russian ruler. And that's why attacking America and uh, uh, making uh, not friends, but allies with other thugs and, and rock states, it's the only way to move forward. You mentioned Iran, but you forgot North Korea. Yes. I have no doubt that the North Korean nuclear program has been funded and, 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 and developed by Russians because there's no other way in the world that the country that uh, with a wretched economy, with no real science, could make more sophisticated nuclear weapon than India or Pakistan. You know, just you look at the North Korean missiles and Indian missiles, and India is a country with million engineers, with tens of billions of dollars of military budget, and uh, their in, the intercontinental missile is, is at least, you know, twice weaker, you know, into, or just you look at the distance, than the North Korean. How on earth, what country could, 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 could help North Korea? China? I doubt very much. China doesn't need so, you know, the, the, the North Korea being so strong, so they want to keep the regime, but not to, not to arm Putin, of course, because it creates an extra problem for America. It puts American, American soldiers in South Korea at more risk, and it creates chaos. I always call Putin a merchant of doubt. Mm. Because that's the way he operates. You know, he's not selling propaganda. That's why I was not sure about Leninism. He doesn't care. He could support far right or far left, which makes it more difficult. Everything that seeds the uh, seeds chaos uh, in America or in free world, good for him. Hmm. Do you do you have any hope for for democracy promotion in Russia or any time? I mean, post Putin, I don't know. I I do. I do. I mean, look at look at our neighbors in Belarus as we speak. Hundreds of thousands of people are on the street of this small country demanding that dictator who lost elections and not just lost elections. He lost them. You know, it was a landslide. It's this is uh, by all the independent exit polls show that his opponent, women who never heard of three months ago, who just decided to join the presidential race because her husband was in jail, the husband who wanted to run. And she got 72%. Some say probably even more, and definitely in big cities, uh, she, she got probably you know, over 80%. So nearly three quarters of the country rejected a, a Belarusian dictator. And that's a good sign. It's, 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 it's a neighboring country. We already have Ukraine that is, is, is fighting Russian aggression. And Ukraine, uh, since 1994, uh, um, departed from this traditional uh, Russian imperial framework because they had government and the presidency changing hands. In 1994, the, the, the sitting president lost elections in Ukraine. And with all the corruption in Ukraine, with all the problems, I think that's, that, that, that marked a fundamental shift from, it was a milestone from Russian imperial paradigm. Because in, in Ukraine, people know that the government, the president is always elected by them. And they change governments quite regularly, I have to say. You know, but I comment on this too. Russia has a next Crimea. Russia has its little green men and others in Donbass and eastern parts of uh, southern Ukraine uh, right now. So there's really a war going on there. Russia has, as you've remarked, uh, carved off parts of Georgia and also controls that. And all, as all this goes on, it strikes me that the Europeans are kind of shrugging their shoulders over this. You've got Germany wanting to become more dependent on Russian energy with Nord Stream 2, even though the U.S. is very much against it. Uh, and uh, 
Germany is not a particularly good contributor to the NATO alliance, it's, it, it, even though it's a wealthy country. Um, I'm worried about, I mean, I'm, I, I'm a Europhile. I, I, I love Western Europe, but I don't see Europe standing up in a courageous manner to Russia or to China or to the Islamic Republic of Iran or to any other of the of the despots of the world. Look, uh, it's it's uh, it's a long story, and I couldn't agree more. It's not that Germany wanted to be more dependent on Russian gas; it's getting more dependent every day since uh, Russian uh, aggression in in, in Crimea. Uh, Germany doubled the amount of Russian gas it has been buying. Yeah, and um, Germany has been lobbying for the Nord Stream two. Uh, the project that is now stalled, thanks to American sanctions. Um, but um, I would not concentrate on Germany only because what we're seeing in Germany, it's unfortunately, it's like, you know, a plague of corruption spreading across Europe. For 20 years, Putin's cronies, Putin's lobbyists, Putin's agents have been buying influence, uh, investing in soccer clubs, in uh, uh, musical shows, in newspapers, the bribing politicians directly. 20 years of work. And why, why it was successful? Because since 1992, America failed to come up with a new game plan. The end of the Cold War was a big triumph. But as I pointed out in my book, Winter is Coming, it was the moment where America had to, you know, uh, call for, for a new world order, for, uh, for new arrangements, for just give a direction. Failure of leadership that America demonstrated since 1992, and we can blame presidents, you know, for both parties, you know, created this vacuum. And vacuum doesn't stay empty. And the vacuum that has been created uh, by the fact that America didn't have since 1992 a steady foreign policy that did not depend on, on the occupant of the, of, the, of the White House. Same way as the policies set up by Harry Truman in 1946, continued by, by presidents from the both parties, ending with a Republican, Ronald Reagan, you know, finishing off Soviet Union, so winning the Cold War. Since 92, it was all about the man in the White House. Clinton does something, then Bush and does, just, it's, it's doing the opposite, and then Obama does little, if anything, and then you have Trump. And people lost faith in America, that America was there as a factor. And if they, if, if, they, if they lose face in an institution that was there, they look elsewhere. And it's not surprising that 70% of Germans today, in case of the hypothetical conflict between Russia and NATO, or Russia and the United States, would be neutral. Mm. And mm. 7% would support Russia. So it's still three to one, you know, in favor of America and NATO, but it's Germany a country that has been protected by the United States against potential Soviet invasions for decades. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and again, it's, just, it's, the, it's the only way to fight back. It's come up with a plan, League of Democracy, whatever, but plan. And no other country by the United States can just you know, show this, this, the, that's the, there's an alternative and it's a way into the future. Because the moment you walk away, and that's what we saw during Obama years, the vacuum is immediately filled by the bad guys, whether they're terrorists, whether they're thugs, whether they're authoritarians. Uh, Syria, uh, and in, uh, just it's, it's the best example of what happens when America reneges on its leadership and breaks on its promise of the red line. One other issue I wanna make sure we get to is Syria because that, that, there is also a place where Putin has 
has played a very malevolent role. Bashar al-Assad is a client of Tehran. Uh, he was saved largely due to Putin. We have a half million dead, a half million dead. People don't seem to recognize, it's just a statistic, right? As Stalin would say, we have more than probably 5 million who are homeless refugees or simply displaced a generation or two of children who won't be educated. I don't, and there too, I don't see much criticism of Putin in Europe or at the UN Human Rights Council or the UN or anywhere else. Um, but it's a terrible thing that, that Putin has helped to uh, help to do in this country in Syria, which I, for which we should all feel terrible about what's happened to that country. Absolutely, and uh, for Putin, it was you know uh, uh, a win-win situation. It was it's it was a, a double triumph because not only he saved Assad, and we remember that Obama said Assad must go, and Putin said ah. Uh -uh. Assad stays, and that's helped Putin to uh, enlarge his global presence and to demonstrate that he could not just defy America, but he could beat American president on his promise. Uh, uh, and saving Assad also helped Putin to spread his influence there. I mean, let's not forget that it's the first you know, time uh, since uh, the creation of State of Israel when Israeli Israeli Air Force has no freedom to just go around, you know, uh, it's, it's the, the, the perimeter, defense perimeter, because Russian missiles are not far away. Um, but also Putin recognized before Europeans even, you know, started thinking about it, that by pushing refugees with carpet bombing and chemical weapons into Europe, he can destabilize mm -hmm. Europe. Yes. And the rise of the alt-right in Europe is directly related to the Syrian refugees. Even the countries that didn't host them, they still, you know, um, got, you know, this, 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 the, like, it's a negative spell. And, uh, you know, the, Bre the Brexiteers actively use the images of Syrian refugees, just, just crossing the, the borders, you know, trying to climb the fences. Uh, and uh, in Germany, you know, it's first time the rise of the neo-Nazi party was not due to economic crisis. Germany mm. was a thriving economy. And how come that AFD that could scramble two, three percent all of a sudden becomes, you know, one of the top, top parties in Germany, making double digits in national uh, uh, elections, that's 13, 15 percent, and even 25 percent in some of the local elections. The only reason, one million refugees in the country that Merkel accepted. So Putin just, you know, he enjoyed it but without, you know, just you know, even, even investing in that. So AFD, so the, the alternative for Deutschland, the AFD, really owes Angela Merkel a debt of thanks. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, and 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 uh, and again, why did it happen? Because America reneged on its on its role of of saving Syrians and and Iraqis and Kurds from um, uh, from genocide and from you know from massacres. And imagine you now the world we could have lived if Assad would go. I'm not sure Putin would have stayed for so long because mm. the, the old dictators that connect, it's like a brotherhood. And if one goes down, it could be a domino effect. That's why uh, now I'm watching Lukashenko uh, in, in Belarus. Yeah. If he goes down, that it could send ripples across Russia. It doesn't mean that Putin goes down next day, but it, it will send a message, powerful message to Russian people that we can rise also and we can throw the dictator if we are, you know, um, if we're willing to, to make a sacrifice. Before I let you go, is there anything else that's on your mind that I should have asked you about and failed to? 
Look, I just, you know, I, uh, I have so much to say. I, I, I think it's important that, you know, America, America gets together. It's the, you know, the reason I'm so active now with RDI and with all the programs that we are, we are initiating is that I don't see any other way for the free world to recover from the, from the latest blows, from, this, from the last uh, two decades of, of uh, rise of dictatorships and a collapse of democracy worldwide, unless America gets its act together. And America comes up with a plan. And, uh, and going back to the New Democracy Initiative, I could say that, you know, it's a nonpartisan organization. We have people, you know, from uh, different political quarters. We have two former Democratic senators, Heidi Heitkamp from North Dakota and Bob Kerry from Nebraska. We have two prominent Republicans, the former head of RNC, Michael Steele, and a famous uh, many times member of the House, GOP member of the House, Mickey Edwards. So it's, it's an organization that is trying to offer a new vision. And, and I hope that we can make our contribution for America to, you know, to reinvent itself. It's, it's, it's a great foundation, but we need to help to, to make a, a, a construction on top of that, that will be resilient against all the hurricanes and storms of the 21st century. What's the website so people can get more information and learn about it's it? It's rdi.org, rdi.org. Very simple. Well, look, I, Gary, I got to tell you, it's always fun talking to you. I always leave with lots to think about. I only wish we could be doing this in person over good food and adult beverages, maybe before too so long. This is, that's, you know, we're now dreaming about simple things, you know. This is, <laughs> <laughs> the good thing about this pandemic that now we understand, you know, how much, you know, was, was lost. You know, the simple pleasures of life, now they become like, you know, the uh, greatest desires and dreams. Exactly. All right. So until next time, hopefully in person, hopefully over thank adult you. beverages. Thank you, Gary, for being with us. It's a pleasure to thanks talk to you. An invitation, please. Thank you. And thanks to all of you who are listening in. And I hope you enjoyed the conversation as well here on Farm Policy. Thank you for listening to Farm Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. If we could be doing better, tell us. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas. Policy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May. You've been listening foreign partisan.